0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Dataji Green and Chris Webb. It was a Sunday in March of 2014. My Facebook feed was flooded with posts reporting and mourning the death of Ali Mustafa, I'd never had the pleasure of meeting Mustafa myself, but I knew who he was and knew his work, and we knew a lot of people in common. On that day, many, many people who had been involved with grassroots organizing and or grassroots media in Toronto were shocked and immensely saddened to hear that a barrel bomb from the armed forces of the Syrian dictatorship had taken his life. Mustafa was a young, working-class man who grew up in Toronto and was politicized while he attended York University. He became a dedicated participant in a whole host of radical projects, including the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, Solidarity with the Palestinian Freedom Struggle, the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly, the New Socialist Group, and many more. Moreover, he had a keen appreciation for the importance of media grounded in those kinds of politics, and he himself produced a large and diverse body of writing, from perceptive film reviews to journalism to radical analysis, and, particularly in his later years, stunning photojournalism from places like Brazil, Egypt, and Syria. On the same day that his death became known in North America, friends and comrades and allies of Mustafa came together. Initially, their goal was to raise money so that his remains could be brought home and given a proper burial. After accomplishing that and organizing an initial memorial service, the group took on the name of the Ali Mustafa Memorial Collective. They decided that they would continue to work together. Not only would they work to preserve the memory of Mustafa and his work, but, given the increasingly precarious realities of media work, particularly for young people who are marginalized in some way, and for people committed to doing grassroots-focused work, they would do what they could to foster other young people doing similarly courageous media work grounded in similar political commitments. To that end, they began raising funds for the Ali Mustafa Memorial Award for People's Journalism, the nominations for which closed at the beginning of November. The award will provide assistance to a young Toronto-area freelance journalist. The first winner will be announced in the spring, and the group is continuing to accept donations through RememberingAlimustafa.org to support the initiative. Dataji Green and Chris Webb are both members of the Ali Mustafa Memorial Collective. They speak with me about Mustafa's life, his political commitments, and his work, about the harsh landscape for youth, particularly marginalized youth, taking up grassroots media work today, and about the work of the collective in both remembering Ali Mustafa and in supporting others who are doing work that carries forward the spirit of his.
1: My name is Chris Webb. I'm a member of the Ali Mustafa Memorial Collective, also a PhD student at the University of Toronto. The Ali Mustafa Memorial Collective and the award was put together by Ali's close friends and comrades as a way of both preserving his memory and contributing to work that he thought was important and valuable related to critical journalism uh, and reporting.
2: In some ways, I feel like I joined the collective as a bit of an honorary supporter in my first instance. I knew Ali at a bit of a distance, but still he was in the circle of comrades that I was part of at York University in 2008-2009. I was a part-time master's student and a member of Canadian Union of Public Employees, Local 3903, and we went on strike that year. And Ali was an undergrad student there, and he was at the forefront of bringing an alliance to our organizing. So I met him in that vein. And when the collective formed, I got a call from one of the other members of the collective as to whether I, in the position that I was holding at the time, which was organizing freelance workers into the Canadian Media Guild, whether I could lend a hand in terms of fundraising. So that's how I came to be involved.
1: I knew Ali just from around, from so many events, from both from York University, as Dathji mentioned, where he was really active in Students Against Israeli Apartheid, where he was active during mobilizations around the strike. And it seemed as though every activist event that I went to in Toronto, whether it was a Palestine Solidarity event or a Workers' Assembly event, Ali was there. And I got to know him through some of the writing that he did. He had this fantastic website called From Beyond the Margins, where he both posted photographs that he had taken both here in Toronto and from when he was traveling abroad too. And so I I feel like I got to know him at first through the work that he was doing on his website when he was writing for The Bullet or for Rabble. He was a working class kid, raised in North York in Toronto, went to high school here And from what I know, talking to mutual friends and from the conversations that I had with him, he was really radicalized when he began at York University, being involved in these movements, wanted to be a part of something bigger. He was drawn to these international solidarity issues and to critical journalism and reporting as well. Eventually, I was working as an editor at Canadian Dimension magazine and he wrote a couple of fantastic film reviews for us, primarily of films that came out about situation in the Middle East in, in Palestine and in Syria as well. So in describing who he is, yeah, he, he was a very humble, down-to-earth guy, but also very, very dedicated to his craft, very dedicated to really explaining in depth these issues that he saw mainstream media as sort of just glossing over or providing a very limited perspective on.
2: I had a chance to work in media and community media and was in and out of different media roles and scenarios up to national radio at CDC. And when I went back to school and I was at York and was engaged with so much going on there in terms of social justice and student engagement, I really saw the difference that Ali made both in terms of the work that he did, but also how he approached it. And I kind of was amazed and to some extent super impressed by his deep media critical analysis. It came naturally to him. And he was all about trying to connect people meaningfully and truthfully through his journalism and through his photography. He was consistent in every way from the courses that he took, where he would challenge the professor's He would challenge the status quo of student engagement through creating a whole new newspaper and outlet on campus called York University Free Press, and doing the due diligence of research and networking to find the resources who brought forward the critical analysis that you had to always read between the lines to find, and also collaborating with people with so much openness and generosity in doing that work. His approach And use of media was a part and parcel of every single engagement he took up. So he was the true comrade, but he also understood the power of the media, which it's not always the case. It's a very rare thing. I think Ali was
1: definitely inspired and radicalized in many ways by being at York University in an environment where he was around like-minded people, but he always wanted to go beyond that. He was always pushing to look at a bigger picture or to just go beyond the politics of small groups. His trips that he took to Palestine and to Brazil and to Egypt and and Syria were a way of him saying that we can't just debate these things on on campus. We need to actually do something to change the world, and we need to go and see what conditions are like in these places that we constantly talk about. As has been mentioned, he was involved in the YU Free Press at York. He was involved in the British Toronto Workers' Assembly. He was also, for a time, a member of the New Socialist Group, Certainly, Palestinian solidarity work was really close to his heart, so he was heavily involved in that, too. I can't speak really closely to all the groups that he was involved in, but he had many
2: homes around Toronto in that respect. Ali was also very engaged with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. He understood what it was like to live in poverty. He and his family grew up in a circumstance in a neighborhood that has been consistently at the margins of the resources that are supposed to be available for the whole society. And so he understood this in his very upbringing, in his very body, in his very experience. And it was really no question to him about needing to be involved. I think he really believed he was giving back, but he was also giving forward. He was very keenly aware of that. And so he would do things like he would go on his trips abroad and take the photographs that he could and bring them back as a means to both educate people about what's going on in those places but also to help raise money for local organizations such as OCAP. And he had a very thorough and strategic sense of organizing solidarity in this way, that he wanted to be able to mobilize one thing towards another on every scale. Tell me more about his writing and media work. I'd
1: recommend it for listeners, if they want to take a look at his writing, to go and read some of it on the website on remembering alimustafa.org. But it really spans the gamut of social issues. Interviews with political cartoonists, reporting that he did from Brazil on the Landless People's Movement, reporting from the streets here in Toronto during the G20 summit, and then some of his later writings when he came back from Egypt, right after the revolution for the first time in, in 2011, I believe. Some of the most illuminating stuff, I think, were his personal interviews. And and, and Ali didn't like to talk about himself too much. I mean, that really comes through even in these interviews with him as well. It was really, it was about the issues. It was about what was happening on the ground to ordinary people. But there was one that was done with him, I believe published in Upping the Ante, where he talks about why it's important to go to these spaces, why it's important to actually see what's happening for yourself. So he published all over, but he's maybe better known now for his photographic work. He had an incredible eye for it, and that comes out in some of the material on the website. And he also made documentary films, too. So he was a real multi-talented type of reporter.
2: My sense from speaking to many people, I also interviewed some of his colleagues after his death and then read through his website, and I was really quite honored to be the moderator of a full-fledged panel discussion about him and his work. But in all those interviews, what constantly led back to his choice to pick up photography, I believe, was the fact that it could say so much. When you're moving through spaces of urgency, such as in a conflict zone, it's really difficult to find the time to sit down and write and gather your thoughts and convey what it is that you've witnessed in the full sense of it. I think there's something about the visual medium of photography that tends to capture what cannot necessarily be expressed in words. And it's a kind of an act of translation and interpretation that he performed. And I think that, as Chris said earlier, when you're at higher education institutions such as a college or university, when you are discussing social justice issues and campaigns and movements, and you're using a lot of words, perhaps you're even using textbooks and putting it into writing, it's more of a longer form process and a longer form medium. But if you think about the medium of photography, it helps capture that urgency, and it also helps put it into a situation. So you really get a much more full-fledged sense of the space and the place and the people there, the life and the culture there, when you can lay eyes on it. And I think that when you're especially tasked with trying to communicate the incredible intensity and urgency, insecurity and tragedy of what takes place in a conflict zone to people who are incredibly privileged, safe and secure, a whole world away, the photograph is probably one of the swiftest media to choose to convey that sense. And in some ways, even though it's a snapshot in time and space, it's less translated than you would be sitting down trying to write. Because there is no language. You don't have to worry about translation from Arabic to English. You don't have to worry about what's the term I would use to capture the essence of what this person is experiencing. You just show it on the film. And there's some way in which that defies cultural difference and linguistic difference.
1: Adam a more mundane level, I always wondered how he went to Syria or to Egypt speaking no Arabic at all, but he always seemed to get by okay. But I think part of it is he wanted to communicate what was happening in these places as a way of motivating people to action. And I remember his deep disillusionment whenever he would come back to Toronto and he would do a photo exhibition and do a talk. And his disillusionment didn't really stir people to the type of action that he wanted. He was always a bit disturbed by that. But I think it was a strategy to communicate that type of urgency Particularly in the Syrian case, I think that was really important for him to come back and actually to show people what conditions were like. And the writing was a slower process. He didn't have a huge amount of resources to be there for, you know, six months. He had limited money and limited time.
0: Tell me about the founding of the collective. A- am I right in understanding that it initially came together on the very same day that folks in North America found out about his death via social media?
2: Well, I think there was a decision made for a group of people to work together, and it was just friends and allies who worked collectively. I don't know of any particular discussion that established it by name as a collective right off the bat.
1: Right after he was killed, there was this incredible outpouring of grief and support for his family. And the reality of it is if somebody, particularly a freelance journalist, dies in a conflict zone abroad, it's incredibly expensive to have their remains repatriated. So fundraising had to happen to actually get his remains brought back to Canada and to have a burial for him. And so there was a fundraising campaign launched right after we heard about his death. People donated very, very generously, which was wonderful. And a lot of people came together for a memorial that we had at the Cecil Street Community Center in Toronto. So the outcome of that was people who were involved in that memorial got together and thought about the possibilities for putting some sort of organization together that would both memorialize him and continue the type of work that he was doing. I had been in touch with a couple of people, mostly independent media folks for publications or websites that he had written for floating this idea of some kind of award for freelance journalism in his honor. And then I got in touch with some people that were involved in Memorial, and that's how I kind of became involved. So there was a whole string of discussions happening amongst a whole range of people who knew Ali and had worked with him. And that's how the collective came together. And and also as a way of thinking, well, you know, we, we have some of these funds, what do we do with that? What's the best way of continuing work that Ali thought would be important? So that's how it came together.
0: Tell
2: me more about the award. In the media industry, they've always relied on freelancers. But there's been a really very intensely marked shift in the last 10 years and gaining momentum as the years go by towards no longer engaging or employing full-time journalists and photojournalists, but relying on citizen journalists to some extent and for freelancers. Within that context, you also have an incredible disparity in respect for the work that freelancers and photojournalists do between somebody who is seen as being from the West or from the nation of the broadcast entity, so specifically from North America and Europe, and specifically sort of in the guise of who is considered a legitimate North American or European, which is usually a white person and almost ideally a white man. There's always been that disparity between those people who have had the most mobility as photojournalists and people who are in localities, who are considered from those local places where these kinds of conflicts are taking place, such as the Middle East. And so Ali fell squarely into one of the most vulnerable places on this spectrum, which is that he was of a generation where it was going to be incredibly difficult If he wanted to be a full-time, fully engaged journalist, it was going to be incredibly difficult for him to find an outlet that would hire him permanently as a staff or even on a full-time contract basis. And especially from the perspective that he wanted to continue to give, which was of everyday people and not necessarily just focusing on the political actors and the legitimated actors in the West's eyes. And then you bring into that fold the fact that Ali was from a background where his parentage gave him a name that was Muslim post-September 11th, in the midst of this war on terror that continues to rage. He was born and raised in a non-connected, non-bourgeois area of Toronto and Canada, and he didn't have any access to institutional supports. And yet he picked up his own courage, and with his meager means, he went and he did very beautiful and meaningful and in some ways transformative reporting. So his person and his work is no less significant and no less impactful than other journalists. Except for the fact that he didn't have all this organized backing that most journalists have. And the history of foreign correspondence of people coming from a place like Canada to go abroad to try and send a message home is such that it's generally been supported in the service of getting a Canadian view on things. And so he was delegitimized in the sense that because he wasn't seen as a typical true Canadian or or what does Harper call it now, old stock Canadian (laughs) right? (laughs) He wasn't seen as that. And in fact, As he was in the region trying to sell his photographs to agencies in places like France, they were treating him as if he was a local Egyptian or a local Syrian because of his name, even though he didn't even have the advantage, relatively speaking, of being able to speak Arabic and be actually fully engaged and considered part of those cultures in a sense. He was still being rendered local and other and lesser. And so he was not getting paid properly or on time or sometimes at all for his submissions. He was having a hell of a time getting through to a desk editor or an assignment editor that it would take him seriously and take his works. And I think in their mindset, they had conceptualized him as a local that, you know, you pay them a local wage, if at all, and you don't have to take them seriously. So he super suffered and struggled as far as a worker trying to do this work in a way that others would not have suffered in a way similar, frankly, to how local people do continue to suffer. And that incredible inequality in the global north versus global south dynamic, and now in this modern-day reality of most photojournalists having to be freelance, very much suffering in that dynamic of inequality, means that people who are in the same spirit of journalistic work as Ali was are super hard-pressed today, doubly, if not ten times more so, than they might have been 10 or 15 years ago, to get messages to mainstream or more legitimated or more widely taken up news sources. They are certainly hard pressed to get paid by anybody or taken seriously by anybody. And when you don't have those kinds of institutional bodies and supports taking you seriously, it leaves you multiple times more vulnerable when you are in the field doing the work in war zones. You don't have anyone at the other end of a phone or some kind of lifeline looking out to lobby for you. If we take the comparison of Mohamed Fahmi, who has just returned to Canada after more than 400 days in prison in Egypt, imagine somebody like Ali being imprisoned there. At least Mohamed Fahmi had the backing to some extent of his broadcaster and absolutely of a whole very professional, very institutionally supported international journalistic community. Ali had none of that. And so it left him even more vulnerable while he was in the field, doing all the beautiful things that he was doing. He had the grassroots support of the people that he connected with and with whom he became allied. He had their instinctive support to look out for him and in the end bring his body out of the rubble and bring it home. And in some ways that's even a preferable type of support to have. But it's not enough. And so this award considers that whole picture. And has tried to create not just a monetary award for somebody wanting to take up a photojournalism project, but has also tried to put forward memberships in a number of different organizations that are institutionally connected and will be able to connect the winner of this award to those kinds of professional supports and insights and perhaps even advanced training before putting themselves in such a vulnerable position.
1: There's some criteria which is listed on the website, but essentially it's targeting people that live in the Greater Toronto area who are under the age of 30 and specifically not employed on a full-time or permanent basis with a media organization.
0: Are you planning on having some sort of event or ceremony to present the award? Yeah, we're hoping to have something like that, hopefully in March.
1: We, this previous March, as Dashi mentioned, had this event on reporting in conflict zones around the world. We had some fantastic panelists that joined us from the real news, from Al Jazeera and the nation. Some of them had memories of working with Ali, but also talking about the situation that freelancers face, as Dashi's just explained. So we're hoping to have a similar event this coming March of 2016, where it's both intended as a fundraiser for the awards. And to announce the person that had won the award, and then the upcoming March at the next event would be a showcase of the work they've done with the funds that they received from the award.
0: In your experience of organizing for this award and of the other things that you're involved with, is it your sense that there are young people out there who are doing similar kinds of work informed by similar kinds of political commitments, whether it's happening here in Canada or abroad? despite all of those barriers that give you a sense of hope that the spirit of Ali's work is indeed being carried forward?
2: I think absolutely, yes. I believe there's a kind of a resurgence or an upsurgence of young folks who are definitely taking this up, who are doing it in their own ways, who are making of it what they can, This absolute sea change in technology and technical innovation has put the means of producing very high quality works possible more than ever, ever before. I see evidence of it all over the place, whether it's around reporting on social movements, whether it's reporting on marginalized cultural events or underground communities of activism and cultural expression. I see it around people mobilizing on issues that, you know, people never used to disclose on these kinds of things, like mental health, like struggling with poverty, like struggling with accessibility, issues about migration and what's the difference between here and back home for the next generation, issues around sexual orientation and gender identity. So I'm very impressed and very, very hopeful and heartened by what I see going on by Ali's generation and the next generation as well.
1: I think there's been, as you mentioned, a real shift in media, both in the tools that people can use to create incredible, incredible content, which they are, but also this idea that if you're interested in being a journalist and in doing this type of reporting, you don't have to wait to get a job with CTV or the Global Mail or whatever it might be that it's possible to do this type of work around these issues if you think it's important enough and there are outlets out there that you can communicate and distribute these stories. The challenge is, I guess, something I we're trying to address with the award is that as much as there's been this shift and there's this motivation and desire to do this type of work and do this type of reporting, it's incredibly difficult to make a living out of it, and it's incredibly difficult to sustain it over a long period of time. So I also am quite hopeful. I see a lot of fantastic young reporters doing very valuable work. And I think we have to begin thinking about models to support this type of work outside of the tested mainstream media models that are out there and certainly outside of the outsourced freelance work that Dashi was describing.
2: We want to spread the word far and wide to those who are interested in this kind of journalistic reporting and this kind of communications across difference in solidarity. This is so much about what Ali represented, and the most beautiful piece of his legacy is that some of what his spirit contributed and some of what he inspired in the rest of us can be brought forward to support more. We will be making a call in the coming months for continued donations to the fund to be able to support this on an annual basis, and so we really much encourage people to visit the website, org to surf through and see his work and understand its meaning and its impact and know that we need to continue to support people like him.
0: You have been listening to my interview with G Green and Chris Webb of the Ali Mustafa Memorial Collective. To learn more about their work and to make a donation to support it, go to RememberingAliMustafa.org. That's RememberingAliMustafa.org. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.